Good morning. Good morning. I just want to extend my welcome to those of you from Vine Evangelical this morning. Um, it's good to have our brothers and sisters with us. Um, we are in relationship with Glenn. We spend time with Glenn now and again, pray together. In fact, it was only this week, I think, Glenn and I met up and chatted and prayed and shared our woes together and wept together. And um, <clears throat> No, no, he's, he was saying wonderful things about his wonderful church. Um, and it is just so good, isn't it, to be part of God's family. And I'm excited for what God is going to do uh, through us as a church, at Hope Church in Seven Oaks. And I believe God has got great plans for you uh, as the Vine Evangelical as well. And Glenn and I were just chatting this week and we were just saying we, there's this real sense of just a new wave of the Holy Spirit coming. And we're just wanting to sort of put our sails up ready for the wind for when it blows. And I just feel that there, there's an increasing sense and expectation for that. And you can play your part, whether you're at Hope Church or the VEC, by just keep pursuing him, going after him. We believe God is about a great work. Uh, I'm just going to have to tip my notes up because I'm aging and I can't see it properly like that. That's better. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, if you are visiting today, uh, Adam said, my name is Ian. Um, I'm one of the elders here and it's just a great privilege that we can just share God's word together and worship together. Uh, we've been going through a series called The Greater Story and it's really looking at the whole storyline of the Bible, the grand narrative, if you like, from beginning to end that there is one continuous story all the way through of God's plan of salvation for his people. Um, and we're in this next section of our series that Jeeves started last week, looking at the character of Moses. Uh, and as you know, Moses is a key biblical figure in the whole biblical narrative. He's quite key. If you don't know that, he is. And we're continuing the story today and looking at a major part of the story it is a major event in the history of the Bible and a major event in the history of the world. One of the biggest stories in the Old Testament is about how God reaches out to redeem a people from slavery and into a promised land. God shows his people that there is a way out, there is an exit. That is what exodus means, exit. And this story shows that God today is still showing there is a way out. God still rescues people today from darkness. And from the birth of Israel to the church today, God delivers and dwells with his people. And this story, it began several thousand years ago, where God uh, makes a promise with Abraham that he's, would, his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. A great nation would one day dwell in the promised land. We see loads of New Testament reflections in the story that we're looking at today. We'll see stories of plagues, of Pharaoh refusing to budge, a hardening of his heart as God brings down every false god one by one. And then finally, we see God bringing judgment and the Passover meal, where a lamb is sacrificed. Just like with Abraham and Isaac, which we've seen earlier in our series, a lamb took the place of the firstborn son. And what we're looking at today shapes much of Israel's history. The life of a Jewish person, their liturgy and their worship. And although this isn't exactly, but this is often seen, this moment, as the birth of the nation. Believe it or not, what uh, some press outlets will tell you, that it was 1948, but actually this is the birth of the nation. And it steps out from the womb, of, if you like, of bloody doorposts to emerge into a new life. 
And there is so much impact. This story of Exodus heavily influences the New Testament with words like covenant and blood and lamb and Passover. And we see through the book of Exodus into the New Testament lots of similar themes. So this story really started last week where Jeeves uh, introduced us to Moses following on from uh, Genesis. Where Genesis finished, the last words were Joseph in a coffin. The final words of Genesis are Joseph in a coffin. Genesis started in a garden with man dwelling with God and it finished with man in a coffin. It started in the garden and it finished in the grave. It started where man was supposed to be, dwelling with God, and it finished where he wasn't supposed to be, in a box. And we're picking up the story today, following on from last week, where God called Moses, uh, where God had heard and remembered the cry of his people in Egypt, and was calling Moses to go back. We had that burning bush, the famous burning bush moment that Jeeves looked at, where Moses is called by name twice. And we have God revealing his name to Moses, the I am, the great I am, revealing his nature and his character and his purpose. And there's this dialect then that follows from that, where God and Moses uh, are talking and God tells Moses to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses isn't sure about this. He doesn't think the people will listen to him. But we really start to see today the supernatural at work through this story. God is a supernatural God that does things outside of our usual experience and our understanding. And when we try to ignore all the supernatural stuff today, we would have to rip out large parts of our Bible because he is a supernatural God. And the point of miracles are they're miraculous and they're pointing towards something. And he still does it today. And God makes it clear in Genesis chapter 4, that people will believe the words of God when they see the works of God. There's so much truth in this uh, still today. So just try and pick up on these as we go. We're going to look at the first section of Scripture from Exodus 4, verse 1 to 7. So God, Moses is speaking to God, and Mo, it says, from, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And then he took it out, and behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So we see God showing proof of his nature and his power, and he goes on to Moses about turning the uh, Nile into the water of the Nile, the river Nile, into blood. And at the beginning of this section... This supernatural section, God is showing Moses his message to the Egyptians that he is not only a God that creates, but he can also be a God that destroys. He's not only a God who gives life miraculously, but he can also give death too. 
all of these signs that he gives them, the snake, the leprosy, the, when the water turns to blood, all of these signs are death. And God's message to Moses is this, show them my power and what it can do to give life and to destroy. That he is a God who gives and he takes away. He has the power of life and death in his hands. And they need to be told, not just of the heaven where they can live forever if they repent, but of the hell that they will inhabit forevermore if they do not. Moving on the story, in the story, Moses, having been shown the power of God, still, still looking for more excuses of why he can't go. And there's this fascinating uh, um, dialect, dialect, again, between and dialogue between them. And um, he's still making excuses. I can't speak. I'm, I'm not very well versed in these things. And in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, The anger of the Lord kindled against Moses after Moses said he was unable to speak. But God, still in his grace and patience, gives his brother Aaron to speak with him and for him. And it's worthwhile just touching on this briefly, that God, when he tells us to go and speak to others, doesn't always give us the words in advance. And I think that's often what holds us back a lot of the time. But it is in the going, in the, where the trust and the faith comes, and it grows when we open our mouths. Don't expect God to give you everything you need to say before you go and say it. What's also fascinating about this is in um, verses 15 to 16, God says to Moses and Aaron, I'll give you the words to say, I'm going to teach you what to do. And then he says uh, that he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him, to Pharaoh. What an incredible statement. And I think this is showing that God doesn't give us the jobs that we're fit for, but he fits us for the jobs that he gives us. Do you get that? And we must know that when God calls us to do things, it's not in our own strength and ability that he's depending upon, but his own. It's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Who wants Christ's power to rest on them? Then boast in your weakness evermore. Moving on into chapter 5. Moses and Aaron go to Egypt and they confront Pharaoh. Let my people go, they declare. So they go. Can they go and worship God in the wilderness? And Pharaoh then has this kind of very modern, arrogant answer in chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Almost sounds like a stroppy little kid that at the end, well, and I'm not going to let them go. So there. Firstly, it isn't offensive to Pharaoh that there is a Hebrew God. There are many gods in his world. He isn't concerned about that, but there's this very pluralistic modern question that's being asked, and it's still being asked today. It's not believing in God that people find offensive. In fact, I think the percentage of atheists in the country is probably smaller than we might think, because people's hearts are still hungry 
for something that the sacred cannot provide, uh, the, the secular cannot provide, rather. And that's the reality of the world that you and I inhabit. Pharaoh inhabits this world. It's not offensive to him that they have a God. What is offensive to him, that he might have some sort of authority over him. And it's the same thing that we struggle with, the same thing our culture struggles with. It's not a problem to believe in God unless you're saying your God is telling me how to live. If there's one thing we cannot tolerate, it is some deity impending upon our freedom and our desires. And we live in a day, an age where, where Pharaoh struggled with it because he thought he was a God. Who is this God to tell me what to do? For I am God. And people struggle with this today in the modern age because we, we kind of live in this supposed post-truth era. It's a kind of, who cares what's true as long as I feel good? It doesn't matter what the facts are. If I get to choose what makes me happy, there is no truth except what makes me happy. What makes me happy rules the world. There is no authority but my authority. Can you see the reflections between Pharaoh and today? But this is so wildly illogical because so, but so many people are operating under this that there are no objective truths. There are no truths that lay on all people everywhere. It's just what feels right to me. Get the objective facts out of the equation because objective facts trigger me. I don't feel like that. I want what makes me feel good. I, I want what appeals to my emotions and my personal belief. Throw the facts out the window. It's crazy to me that we have a word for this in 2024, post-truth. Truth doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. God is, is, however, trying to call Pharaoh and us into willing submission and obedience to him. And many of us today, instead of glad submission to the God of the Bible, we are far more apt to believe this kind of moralistic, man-centered kind of nonsense of our day. And instead of the Sermon on the Mount, we, we like the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley, which reads, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Now apologies if you're Nelson Mandela fans or some South Africans might like this, but we all love that stuff. We are masters of our soul. The captain of our ship, I can do this. Now the reality is we have a ton of objective evidence that tells us we are not the master of anything. And this man-centered nonsense, this overestimation of our ability to pull things off, especially at deeper levels of meaning and existence. You know, I think I could, we could work really hard and get a nice car. Guess what? Well done, you've just got a nice car. You could work really hard to get into the neighborhood that you want to get into, but that doesn't make you the captain of your ship, the captain of your soul. You could work really hard and get a six-pack and abs, and, uh, but that's just you working out and eating well, but guess what? You're still going to die, right? But God, in his mercy, steps into this space and answers the question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And do you know what? I think there are probably, there are areas in all of our lives right now 
where we know the Lord is leading us towards obedience and we have our heels dug in. And I think every now and again, this question arises in all of us from time to time. Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord, in his mercy, steps into that space. He answers Pharaoh's question, and he answers it for Egypt, and he answers it for us too. God shows his power time and time again, and every time Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it starts off with Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and then God does it. Pharaoh doesn't respond as Moses had hoped, and he actually turns even harder against the Israelites. So he takes away their straw and makes it even harder to make bricks and with the same expected productivity. And then we see over the next few chapters this battle between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses is saying, let my people go. No, says Pharaoh, and the plagues strike. Pharaoh softens when the plagues come. He considers letting the people go. And Moses even contends um, on Pharaoh's behalf to stop each plague. The plague goes away, then Pharaoh reneges and abandons his promise. Then another plague comes, and each time it is hitting at the heart of every false god and idol in Egypt. That's what every plague represents. And from chapter 7, then the story moves on from the dialect, from from the discussion, from words to works. to Moses and Pharaoh in dialogue and God finally moving and showing his power. And throughout this time, we see the incredible patience of God. And his message is this. He's saying, look, I will show you what I can do before I do it. I've told you what I'll do and you won't listen. And I will show you what I will do and then see if you listen. Yet still he wouldn't. And the plagues come, 10 of them with the 10th being the deadliest of them all. It starts by attacking the Nile. The Nile had many gods, but what happens here strikes right at the heart of Egyptian commerce. All their power, all their might, all their wealth was caught up in the Nile. And the primary god of the, or goddess of the Nile was called Happy. Genuinely, Happy. That's what she was called. It should not be lost on us in the irony here. Because so many of us today, even Christians, lose out on all that God has for us by sacrificing at the idol of happy. Momentary things that give short-term happiness, which could even be fairly long careers, or financial decisions, or even how we choose to parent our children. Well, we don't want to make them unhappy. We want comfort. We want safety. We might be even chasing a dream that isn't realistic. Or even of God. And God doesn't want us to be poor, per se, but he does not want us to be constantly chasing prosperity. We can see ourselves time and time again in this story. God sends a plague. Pharaoh changes and then reneges. Um, We could have an encounter with God in a meeting or in a conference, or it might be a new day, and we're convicted, and we have this certainty of our salvation, and we want to go and live for God, we want to go on mission. But then, like in this story, magicians come along, and they try and replicate it. Or they dig ditches alongside the Nile for drinking water. But it's short-sighted, and it only lasts for a moment. 
Pharaoh's heart grew hardened because he learned, he, I could just dig a ditch and get some water from alongside the Nile. But here's what happens so often, is that we get exposed for pursuing the wrong thing, for worshipping the wrong thing, for chasing the wrong thing. We get exposed. It might be, my marriage is not working out the way that I thought it would. My job hasn't played out how I thought it would. The mo- my money hasn't worked out how I thought it would. I haven't got to that sweet point that I was hoping for, and it is just evasive, and God will eventually lay us bare. But he calls us to himself. But we're going, oh, but Lord, that would require complete surrender. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Lord, I don't know if I can go all in committing to you. Maybe I can carve out my own ditch. I can go my own way. But the fullness of life hasn't been found where I thought. Maybe I'll just try other lanes, other avenues. And we begin, when we live like this, to harden our hearts towards God. And this is what Pharaoh does. He hardens his heart against the mercy of God. Hey, listen, sometimes it is God's mercy that he allows you to be wounded. To reveal to you where you have bet your life on the wrong horse. That is his mercy. It's not his wrath. It's his mercy. And Pharaoh, despite God pointing out that happy isn't working, chooses to dig a ditch next to the Nile. I don't know if you know much about the Nile in regard to its depth and its speed and how many tons of water per second are moving in the Nile. We've got some Egyptians in our family that you might want to talk to them. They might understand uh, more. But Pharaoh is satisfied with digging a little ditch beside the massive force of the Nile to sip dirty water. God provides mercy. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it happens all the time to this day because who is the Lord that I should obey his voice. And then these plagues continue. And here's the Nile. And then the second one, you might not f- think it's terribly severe, but frogs come. You know the little frogs you see in your garden? They were probably bigger than that. And they come. But they're not just a few in your garden. They're everywhere, throughout the house, all over the place. And then they're dying and stinking up the place. And that's what happened by the millions and millions Then plague three comes, gnats biting men men and animals. Plague four, there are flies swarming and ruining the land and covering food, landing on people's eyes. I mean, I've been to Scotland in gnat season, which I think it's like the beginning of the summer, and that that was hard enough for just to get in my car, get away from them. It was worse than that. Scotland's very nice, by the way. Just don't go in gnat season. Plague five is disease in which animals began to die. The horses, the cattle, the camels. Plague six, boils which begin to spread from animals to humans. Nice. Plague seven is hail so strong that it killed anything that went outside. Plague eight, locust, a plague of locusts. I don't know if you've seen a plague of locusts on the TV. There's a thing on planet Earth uh, from a couple of years ago, uh, and they destroyed 40,000 tons of vegetation in a day. 
Plague nine, darkness. So dark that nobody could go out. Can you imagine living in perpetual darkness? And all the way through these events, each one is getting progressively worse and more severe. And every time God is giving Pharaoh a chance to respond. It's going to get worse and worse. Will you please respond? At first it only touched the water. Then it reached the animals. Then it touched the the people with boils, and then it led to death, all things dying all around them. God was attacking each of their own gods, every idol, every area of comfort. God was saying, I am in charge of everything, not the gods that you worship. All the while, God's people were protected through it. Whilst there was darkness, the sun was shining in a place called Goshen. When there were boils on the Egyptians, the skin was clear on God's people. They didn't have frogs in their bedroom. God's people were protected from all of this, proving this wasn't some natural disaster that kept happening time and time again. And then Pharaoh professes repentance on four occasions. He says, I'm sorry, four times. Ask God to forgive him four times. But why then did he not find salvation? He was sorry and contrite, but what came out of his mouth did not match what was in his heart. He said it, but he didn't really believe it. All the while, he was just planning on how to keep his free labor. He even tried bartering with Moses. I've done wrong, I'll let them go. You can worship within our borders. No, says Moses. Um, Okay, I'll let you go and worship beyond the border. No, says Moses. I'll uh, let you go but you leave your wives and children here. No, says Moses. I'll let you go, but leave your possessions and your flocks and herds here. No, says Moses. God wants everything. Isn't that true today? God wants everything. And today, Satan is still using similar tactics. Go to church, but, you know, don't get too involved in this thing. Don't get too fanatical. Don't get too lost involved in this Christianity business. Sure, go to church on Sunday, just come back to me on Monday. God wants us to commit everything we have to him, all that we have, all that we might own that would cause a blockage between him. We must offer up to him. We cannot barter with him. We cannot have a foot in both camps. We must give it all to him and say, Lord, everything I have, everything I am is yours. This is the free gift that has been described before that costs you everything. And finally, we get to the last plague, the plague of death. In chapter 11, God tells Moses what he's going to do. There will be death for every firstborn. Chapter 11, verse 4, it says, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall prowl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So Exodus 11 begins 
It is God's final rejection, uh, Pharaoh's final rejection of God's word to him. God has spoken to him time and time again over a period of months this all happens. And we see still this frustration in our day today. When people reject God's word and his messengers and they can remain unmoved and unbothered by what God has to say to them. Someone said to me recently, I'm sure you've heard this before, I've got a bone to pick with God. To which I retorted back, I think he's got a few to pick with you as well. And there was silence. People think they have an authority and a right to demand from God without realising the power and the might of the almighty creator. That he holds their very next breath in in his control. Pharaoh rejected God's word, firstly, because he had no faith in God's word and did not believe he would act. And secondly, he had no fear of God. He saw God demonstrate his power over and over and over again, but he refused to think that God would touch him. And that is what hardened his heart over time. If you do not take God seriously over what he says, And over what he does, your heart will get harder and harder. Until that time when God says, no more. And that's what happened with Pharaoh. Six times, I think it was Pharaoh, it says, hardened his heart against God. And four times, it says, God hardened his heart. I think what we're seeing with nations and churches right now are... Governments are ignoring God's word and opposing it. And they will eventually fall into difficulty if they continue to do so. I think we're, we're seeing churches ignoring God's word and choosing the world's words rather than the divine written word of God. We are seeing, I believe in our time, a great falling away of churches. And there's... there's Lots of stats out there that will show and prove that those that are moving away from God's word are the fastest shrinking churches. And the ones that are holding fast to the word of God are the ones that are growing the fastest. Who knew? When you stuck to God's word and believed him on it, he would bless you. And when you ignore it and move away from it, he won't. In God's word, it says sin is punishable by death. Who takes that seriously these days? People don't believe they have to answer to God because who is the Lord that I should obey him? God has already shown in in Genesis what he does to cities that sin as badly as Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see God giving a way of exit for Pharaoh six times, but he hardens his heart. And then God does it. But God is saying here, whatever path in life you choose... You are free to go down that. But if you choose to walk towards me, I will draw you near. Because God ultimately gives people what they want. How far are you from God right now? And then we come to the Passover. There's a lot in this today, okay. But these are some of the most important things in the Old Testament that help us understand the New Testament. So we're going to read a bit of quite a chunk of Genesis 12. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn to it as well, but it will 
be on the screen. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to uh, what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you can keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that they shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it, with your, bar- your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and the- your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it with haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned to you on the houses where you are, for when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statuette forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Here we see the coming of God's judgment and how he is allowing an escape route for his people. There is an innocent life that has to be sacrificed in their place. There had to be payment for sin. And the lamb was a sacrifice, a substitute for the person who would have died in the plague. And from this point on, the Hebrew people would certainly understand that for them to be spared from death, an innocent life would have to be sacrificed in their place. God is a judge, which must not be understood, which must be understood, sorry, up against the story of salvation. God cannot fully love without judgment. It cannot be perfection and holiness without judgment. Everyone is going to stand before God and be held accountable. Without judgment, it would just be moral indifference. If there was no judgment, people suffer without it. There always has to be a payment for a crime. If the perpetrator doesn't pay, the victim or the family of the victim pay. If the person is allowed to get away with it without payment or judgment, society pays because they go on doing it. And God's wrath and his judgment and his love and salvation are held in perfect harmony. God is merciful, but he is also angry with sin. God is compassionate, but he also is a judge and has fury. He saved his people for the sake of his name and for his glory and his power to be on display. And he saved me and you so his glory and his power could be on display. There is so much in this. I would encourage you to study this for yourself. 
Read books on this. Look at this up in your study Bibles. There are things like Bible project videos which help explain books and the big grand narrative. Listen to people like John Piper, Tim Keller, Terry Virgo who's done a great series on Moses. I like to read books about books in the Bible and I've found them really helpful. And I am not a learned man, by the way. My friends will tell you that. But I, I get a lot out of this and if I can read them, you definitely can, because you are all much smarter than I am. <laughs> See, that's okay, he knows me, he knows it's true. <laughs> this is, of course, a reflection of what we see in Christ. The lamb taking our place, which started back at Isaac and Abraham. It's about a redemption from slavery by the blood of the lamb. It's about a sacrifice that passes through the fire, that saves people from death when everyone around them is facing judgment. It's about the power of faith worked out through obedience. Israelite families were not saved by their personal godliness that night or even the amount of confidence they had in God. They were saved simply by the blood of the lamb over the door. The lamb was necessary for the Israelites. Without it, they might have thought, well, we're just better than the Egyptians and that we deserve to be released. But God making them have a Passover lamb taught them that they deserve judgment just as much as the Egyptians. Remember, I don't know if you know the story, at the beginning of this story, they reject Moses initially and God's word. If we really stop and think about how this would have been, it would have been horrific. It's actually portrayed very well now, you know how I feel about musicals before I say this, but it's actually portrayed really well in the musical The Prince of Egypt. And there was just this moment where it just really struck me, the horror of it. I'm not promoting musicals, though. Um, but the only thing... Can you imagine lying in bed knowing your son has survived whilst you hear the wails of many others who have lost their firstborn? God passed over. The plague of death passed over. It swept over. And when it saw the blood of the lamb, it passed over the house. And you would know the only thing that stood between you and death was the blood on the doorposts and a ram that had been killed. And this is how it is for every single Christian. The only thing between me and hell is the blood of the lamb of Jesus. There is nothing else between me and God's judgment. There's nothing else we can plead. We were singing that this morning, weren't we? We cannot plead a perfect existence before God. Nobody can do that. We cannot plead anything but the blood of Jesus. You know, when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this whole sacrificial system was established by God in the Old Testament and set the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice God would pr provide as an atonement for the sins of his people. Do you know, before Jesus was crucified, the night before he celebrated the Passover, the Passover was actually the next day when he was crucified. He celebrated it the night before, and he was celebrating not with a lamb on the table, but as the lamb at the table. 
This meal, this Passover meal is still celebrated. And two, in Jesus' day, hundreds of thousands of people would have been in Jerusalem. There's an estimation, they don't quite know, but it could have been somewhere between a quarter and a half a million lambs were sacrificed in the temple. And as that happened, there literally would have been blood flowing through the streets from the temple. Do you know there also would have been water coming out the side? because of where it was built, the temple. And it was like a sign as the water flew out that it was God's spirit flowing from it. The temple was God's dwelling place. And do you know when Jesus hung on a cross, they put a spear in his side and blood and water flowed from him? Because not only was he the sacrificial lamb, he was dying for the sins of the world, but he was also the temple of God where God dwelt. And as Jesus took the meal with his disciples, he said, this is my new covenant in my blood, my body broken for you. There was limited time for Pharaoh to repent and there is limited time for us too. We must apply the blood of Jesus to us. To be covered, to be secure, you must accept that he died for you. Midnight eventually struck for the Egyptians, and one day it will strike for you and I. Where will you be on that day? And whenever we take the bread and wine that we're going to do in a moment, we must think of the Passover of Christ, of the blood that was shed, that God might pass over us the body that was broken on which we may feed by faith and with thanksgiving. This is our Passover and it is repeated until the end when there'll be a great feast, when we will feast with him on that great day with Christ in glory. And what was applied to the eldest son in the Hebrew community applies to all of God's sons and daughters today. In a household of faith, we are under the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am only alive now because Jesus died on the cross. In that case, if this is true, I am his and he is mine and I must dedicate my whole life to him. And that is true for every single one of us. My life is no longer my own because the lamb has redeemed my life. I now belong, you now belong, sons and daughters of Christ, to the Redeemer who passed over, who says, now you who are covered by the blood do not, do not deserve death because of my son. And when he now looks at you, he does not see the sinful one, that he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Because there is redemption, there is salvation in no other name. That's what we've sung, isn't it? It's salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. Midnight's coming. Where are you at? Have you given your life to Jesus? Because now is the time. Because you don't know. He may have been warning you. You may not have realised, but today he's saying, will you be covered by the blood of the Lamb? It can sound a bit weird, can't it, if you, this is new to you, but it's the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on your behalf because before that we were all deserving judgment but that judgment has come down on him on Jesus Christ 
He has taken your place. And we now belong to him. And we're now going to remember that with this wonderful meal. Can I ask you to stand just before we come and get the, uh, the wine and the bread? You may not have been walking closely with him. There may be other ditches that you've been digging in your life to try and get water. But the Lord is calling you back today. You may have behaved in a certain way. You may have been thinking a certain way. Well, God wants to redeem your life today because it it is not too late. But one day it will be. And God is calling you to himself today. We're just all going to close our eyes right now and pray. And if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ right now, he promises to come in and give you peace and walk with you for the rest of your life. I'm just going to pray a little prayer. And if you want to do that, you can just pray that after me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I'm sorry for my sin. I thank you that you died for my sin. Will you now put to my account what you did on the cross? And by the help of your Holy Spirit, help me follow you for the rest of my life. Amen. Right, we're now going to take this meal. We're going to take the wine and the bread to remember this great Passover. We've got wine and bread at the front and juice and gluten-free bread at the back. So why don't you come and grab your wine and bread and we'll take it all together.